0: if you've got your copy of God's Word there with you, uh, wherever you are this morning, let me invite you to take it and open up to the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a passage that we've been uh, studying the last couple of weeks, and really it's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible uh, as it relates to the way that one generation is to pass the faith down to the next. Over the past several weeks, I've been in a series that I've simply given the title Home. And in this series, uh, we've been taking an in-depth look at the relationships uh, within the home, Uh, that of marriage, uh, wives and husbands and husbands, relationship uh, to the wife. Um, We've talked about uh, children and parents and parents and children, And really, in this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to preach really a third and final message on the importance of building up the next generation and how the home is really the principal delivery system for the truth of God's Word. So Deuteronomy 6, we'll look at the text in just a moment, but before we do, I was reading something this week. Um, I read a story about a lady by the name of Alice Trillin. And Alice Trillin was the wife of Calvin Trillin, the well-known humorist author who's written several books. Well, his wife, Alice, was a teacher, and she was an activist with children who have severe disabilities. Following her death in 2001, her husband, Calvin, wrote a tribute and had it published in New Yorker magazine. And in this tribute, he really recalled a story from Alice's life that really illustrates the powerful way that parental support can impact a child uh, for all of that child's lifetime. Alice had been involved in a camping program for children with cancer and other life-threatening diseases. And this camp was a place where kids could just be kids rather than patience for one full week out of the summer, and you can imagine how wonderful that was for those children. Well, one year, Alice became drawn to a radiant little girl, despite the fact that this little girl constantly faced the challenge of living with two genetic diseases that severely stunted her growth and even affected her ability to eat. One day, the campers were outside, and they were doing what children do. They were playing a game of duck, duck, goose, and this little girl happened to be tapped on the shoulder. As she struggled to get up and pursue the tagger, she handed off to Alice a letter that she had been holding tightly in her little hand. And since it took this little girl so long to run around the circle, Alice later confessed to giving in to her curiosity about the note and she happened to see that it was a letter that had been written to this little girl by this little girl's mother. Alice would later say this, she said, I simply had to know what this child's parents could have done to make her so radiant, to make her the most optimistic, enthusiastic, and hopeful little human being that I had ever encountered. And the line at the end of that letter grabbed Alice's attention. And here's what this little girl's mama wrote to her. She said this, if God had given us all of the children in the world to choose from, we would only have chosen you. If we had our pick from all of the children in the world, this little girl's parents said, we would have only chosen you. Alice showed that note to one of her coworkers and she said, You need to read this because this is the secret of life right here. She recognized that those words of love, affirmation, and encouragement really revealed the secret of this little girl's remarkable attitude uh, in spite of her tremendous physical challenges. Now, I read that this week, and I thought, how many children aren't given that confidence in life? How many children will go to sleep tonight without the confidence that's been instilled in them by a mom or a dad, uh, someone who loves them with an unconditional love? Uh, I've heard parents often refer to children as accidents. And let me tell you something, children need that kind of confidence for life. And I'll tell you where that comes from, folks. It comes from the home. It comes from the relationship that a mom and a dad is to have and the tremendous impact that a mom and dad can have on their children. God so designed the home to be the primary place where parents have the unique ability to impact their children and shape their lives. And really it's during those formative years in a child's life that their understanding of God their understanding of life in God's world really begins to take shape. And this is why the Apostle Paul said what he did in Ephesians chapter six, when he said, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate your children, but bring them up. Be intentional in the way that you you bring them up, the way that you raise them. Do so in the fear, the nurture, the admonition, of the Lord. And it's this same responsibility that Moses is emphasizing to a second generation of Israelites here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, that word means repetition of the law and that's what's happening in this fifth book of the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is emphasizing the law of God to a second generation of Israelites that had come out of Egypt. The first generation had died in the wilderness They were forced to wander around there in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief and a lack of faith to enter the land. Well, now their children are about to enter the land. Joshua is going to lead them across the River Jordan, and they're going to take the land. But before he does so, Moses is giving his farewell address to Israel. And he emphasizes the importance of the law. He emphasizes the importance of one generation to impact the next for the sake of the faith. So if you're there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want you to look down at verse number 20. I want to read these verses, really the last part of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to what Moses says beginning in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. I want to preach from this thought this morning building the next great generation lord in jesus name thank you for your word thank you for our homes for our families and lord may we as a generation not neglect the responsibility and the importance of impacting and building up the next generation for the sake of christ and it's in jesus name i pray amen in this passage over the past couple of weeks i've really tried to point out uh, two or three important truths as we've worked our way through the 25 verses that make up Deuteronomy chapter 6. Building the next generation involves a couple of things. The first thing that I showed you that it involves is investing in the next generation. In the first few verses of this chapter, Moses emphasizes the priority of making an investment in the next generation. And the way that this generation was to do this was by prioritizing the Word of God. You'll notice in the first couple of verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that Moses uses words such as commandment, uh, statutes, and rules. Uh, What he's doing is emphasizing the revealed truth of God and the priority of the Word of God. Uh, Israelite homes were to be built upon the Word of God. Uh, When Uh, Children would ask later on, why is the Word of God so very important to you, Dad, to you, Mom? It gave those Israelite parents an opportunity to instruct their children in the truth of God. And Moses emphasizes the fear of God in addition to the Word of God. And the fear of God is basically the posture of reverential awe and trust, worship. And this is the attitude that was to characterize the Israelite homes and then that would result in the blessing of God which would be upon these Israelites once they were established in the land. In so much as they were prioritizing the word of God and living their lives in the fear of God, they would then know the blessing of God there in the land. Uh, The second thing that we looked at in this passage had to do with instructing the next generation. Uh, Moses emphasizes the priority of teaching Uh, children who God is. And in this passage, there in verse number four, uh, this became known as the Shema in Orthodox Judaism. That word means listen or hear, taken from a Hebrew word that's used there in verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it was important that these Israelite parents instruct their children as to who God is. Who is he? Well, Moses says that to begin with, he's a God who tolerates no rivals. Uh, He's a God to be worshiped exclusively. Once Israel got established in the land, there would be a very real temptation for them to go after and worship and serve the gods of the Canaanites, their Canaanite neighbors who surrounded them there in the land. And Moses says, you can't do this. God, he's one. There's only one true and living God, and this is something that you've got to teach your children. In addition to that, uh, he emphasizes the fact that our God is a God to be treasured in life above all things. You see there in verse number five, Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 22 that this is the greatest commandment, and the second would be just like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the law of God can be distilled down to these two overarching supreme commands. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. So in order for that to happen, law can't produce that kind of love in my heart. So there's an echo of the new covenant here. That's going to be outlined later on in the Old Testament, whereby God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that will love me, a heart that will fear me, a heart that will delight in my ways. And, of course, that's a reference to the gospel and what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to suffer and die for our sins. But let me tell you something. More than just getting you into heaven, Jesus died so that he could get heaven into you. He died so that the life of God could come and take up residence in you as a believer. And he gives you a new heart. And that new heart is one that loves him, one that delights to obey him. And so obedience is being called for in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But what you need to know is this. It's an obedience that follows redemption. It's not an obedience that precedes redemption. Moses is not saying obey in order to be redeemed. He's saying obey because you have been redeemed. And that's true in the Christian life. Obedience to God comes from a heart that has been redeemed. Uh, Obedience, uh, discipleship in the Christian life uh, follows redemption. We obey and we submit to God because of what he's done in our lives. So he's a God who tolerates no rivals. He's a God who's to be treasured above all things in life. And then Moses also emphasizes the fact that he's a God who transforms our thinking. You'll notice there in verse 6, he says, These words that I command you this day shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. The language that's used there, uh, he's saying, You shall impress upon their minds the truth of this word. Uh, Make every opportunity, make the use of every opportunity you have to instruct your children to impress upon their minds the truth of God's word. We would call this a, a biblical worldview. So parents have the unique opportunity there within the context of the home to shape the thinking, the thought processes, the value systems of the next generation. And God so designed the home that way. So investment, instruction, There's a third thing that's involved in building up the next great generation, and I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at this, really in the last part of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's the word impact, impacting the next generation. How exactly is it that one generation truly makes an impact on the next? Well, pay close attention there in verse number 20, where Moses says, when your son asks you in time to come, as if he's presupposing that a time would come where parents would have an opportunity to instruct, to disciple their children based upon the questions that their children would ask. And By the way, can't kids ask some good questions? Have your kids ever asked a question, man, that just stumped you that you couldn't answer, I and mean, you just tried to make something up to sound smart? But that's not what Moses is saying here to do. He's saying, when your children ask you questions about your faith, when your children ask you questions, why is it that we worship this God? Why is it that the Word of God is so important? Why is it that why is it the church is so important to us as a family? Why is prayer something that's so important to us as a family? Why is the Lord's Supper something that's important to us as a family? When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these testimonies? These statutes, these rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Isn't that interesting that this question, uh, personalized language is used here. Children are saying the Lord our God, not simply the Lord your God, which implies that one generation of parents has been diligent to worship God and to lead their children in that same faith. What's the big deal about all of this? Then you shall say to your son, now watch this, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. In other words, we obey God, we treasure up his word in our hearts and our lives, Uh, we observe his statutes and follow closely his testimonies because we were slaves in Egypt, but listen, God brought us out. God delivered us from our former bondage. And so the idea is that Israelite fathers were to seize the opportunity to give an explanation to their children that came from personal experience. They had personally experienced salvation, and from that personal salvation experience, they were then to offer to their children an explanation of the goodness of God. Now, folks, listen there is no greater privilege that mom and dad has than to lead their children to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the greatest privilege that you as a Christian parent could ever have. It's more important than getting your kids into a prestigious college or university. Uh, It's more important than getting them on a team. It's more important than even their physical well-being. Are you listening? their spiritual well-being. Leading your children to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing that you could ever do. I read where the church on average has about 40 hours a year with, with a child in children's ministry, student ministry, whatever that may look like. Now 2020 has blown that up because I guarantee you this year that's probably been cut in half if not even more but that same year parents will have more than 3000 hours with their children so discipleship when it comes to kids it's not primarily responsibility of the children's ministry workers or the student ministry workers or the student pastor it's mom and dad's responsibility now the church comes alongside and partners with the home in leading kids to faith in Jesus and helping mom and dad disciple their children but no one has more uh, more potential to impact the child spiritually than mom or dad. Some years ago, George Barna conducted studies to determine the probability that people of various ages will trust Christ as their Savior. And the results that he found highly favor children above the age of 5 through 12 years old. 32% compared to teenagers at 4% or adults age 19 or older at 6%. And Barna concluded this, if people don't embrace Jesus as their Savior before they reach their teenage years, their chance of doing so at all is slim. Now let me tell you, salvation is the work of God. It's a supernatural work whereby God's Spirit brings conviction and conversion. And I'm I'm pleased to say that it doesn't matter how old you are or how set in your ways you are, the Holy Spirit can save you. God can save you even way up into your senior adult years. But we can't overlook the fact that so many of us, were we to be honest and were there to be a show of hands in the room, so many of us would testify that we came to faith in Jesus Christ at a young age. That was my testimony. My dad led me to faith in Jesus Christ when I was seven years old. So the thing is, we can't hesitate, we can't delay when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ with our children. From personal experience Giving explanations to our sons and daughters for why we are in the faith. Now, that's what Moses is saying to this second generation of Israelites here. And he's going to show us that spiritual impact demands at least two important things. To begin with, it demands an experience with the grace of God, first and foremost if I'm going to make a spiritual impact in the lives of my children or the next generation, then it means I myself have to have a personal experience with the grace of God. You can't pass on to someone else what you don't personally possess yourself. You'll notice that this phrase brought you out or brought you into is used no less than five times in these verses here in this chapter. And let me tell you that's not insignificant because God wants his people to understand that their success in the land was all because of what he had done in their lives by means of his grace. When it came to delivering themselves from their own helpless condition, Israel was powerless. They were in bondage. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. They couldn't deliver themselves from that bondage. Uh, Moses comes into Egypt. All Moses has in his hand when he comes into Egypt is just a simple staff. Moses doesn't come with an army. Moses doesn't come to lead an uprising and that kind of thing. No, Moses simply comes as a spokesman, but it's the power of God that goes to work on Israel's behalf. It's the power of God. God brings judgment down on the Egyptians in the form of 10 plagues. It's the power of God that leads uh, his people out of their bondage in Egypt. It's the power of God that leads them through the Red Sea. It's the power of God that sustains them during all of their years there in the wilderness. And so God wants his people to understand that their, their salvation, it's not something that they themselves have done for themselves, but rather it's something that he himself has done for them as an act of grace. And that's what he did in the Exodus. He never wants them to forget that their redemption was by his effort, not their own. In fact, you go back through chapter 6 and you can read the language of grace that's used over and over again, like in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give to your fathers, when he gives you cities that you didn't build, houses full of good things you didn't fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant, that's the language of grace. In other words, when you're experiencing the blessing of God on your life once you're there in the land, only as the result of God's grace, he issues this warning, don't be full of pride and forget the Lord. Don't let prosperity become a stumbling block whereby your senses and your spiritual senses become dull and you become dull to the truth and your spiritual life becomes mediocre So there's an experience then with the grace of God. Let me ask you a question as a mom and dad. Have you personally tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious? Have you personally drunk from the well of living water? Have you personally eaten the bread of life? Have you personally been to the cross? Do you know beyond the shadow of all doubt that you, as a mom or a dad, as a man or a woman, do you know that your salvation is sure? Can you say, Jesus Christ has saved me? Then if so, do you have something that you can pass on to the next generation? But if not, then listen, today's the day of salvation for you. You can experience the grace of God in your life. Now, let me tell you, Christian parents face two huge challenges when it comes to leading their children to faith in Jesus. What are those challenges? The first challenge uh, is the challenge of the external culture that surrounds us. And that's a challenge, isn't it, in 2020? Moses warns the people of Israel in this passage about the influence that the surrounding culture could have on them and their children if they're not careful. If you go back up to verses 13 and 14, uh, Moses says, it's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, by his name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who surround you. Now, we don't have to look too far ahead in the Old Testament to see that this generation failed when it came to instructing their children in the truth. In fact, keep your finger there in Deuteronomy 6. Go to the book of Judges chapter 2. In between Deuteronomy and Judges is the book of Joshua. And in those 24 chapters, we read of how this generation that's being instructed in Deuteronomy 6, they they take the land. Joshua, General Joshua leads God's people in a successful quest. God delivers the land to the Israelites. And they get established there in the land. You get to Judges chapter two and uh, Verse 7, the Bible says that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all of the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. The Bible says that Joshua dies at the ripe old age of 110. They bury him there within the boundaries of his inheritance. Verse 10 says, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, That is, the generation that's being instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the time comes when that generation passes from the scene. And let me tell you, the time's going to come when our generation is going to pass from the scene too. The time's going to come when you're going to take your last breath. The time's going to come when you're going to stand before the Lord one day. It's the way it's been since the dawn of creation. It's the way it's going to be until Jesus comes again. One generation that thinks it's invisible wakes up one morning and looks in the mirror and begins to see gray and white hair. And before you know it, that generation's passed from the scene. And another generation arises, verse 10 says, after them who did not know the Lord, neither did they know the work that he had done for Israel. The idea is they didn't have a personal experiential knowledge of the Lord. It doesn't say that they didn't know about the Lord because we know that they knew about the Lord, but they themselves did not know the Lord personally. They did not know the work that he had done for Israel personally. So perhaps there was an epic breakdown when it came from one generation to pass along the faith to the next generation to provide explanations from personal experience with the grace of God. Now let me tell you, here's what happens. You go on down and you look in verse 11. The text says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they began serving the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them. And in particular, the text says they began serving Baal and Baal's consort, Ashtoreth. These were Canaanite deities. And I've often wondered, what is it that made Baal worship so intriguing and so much of a temptation to the Israelites? Well, remember that Israel was an agrarian society. And as such, they had an agrarian economy. And they were dependent upon an abundance of harvest and crops. Baal was, quote, the Lord of the harvest, according to the Canaanites. So you just imagine there in the land, an Israelite man who's having a hard time with his garden one year, but his Canaanite neighbor across the way seems to be prospering a little bit, and then the Canaanite neighbor says, well, let me tell you about Baal, who's the Lord of the harvest, and let me tell you about Ashtoreth. And so before they knew it, Israel was being influenced by the surrounding culture rather than them influencing the culture. See, God placed Israel in the land intending for Israel to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer, but what happened, Israel became a thermometer rather than a thermostat. And you know the difference between the two, don't you? A thermostat affects the temperature. A thermometer merely registers the temperature. And so another generation arises that doesn't know the Lord personally, that doesn't have a personal experiential knowledge of God and His truth, and they become conformed to the culture around them rather than affecting that culture with the truth. Unless we pick on them too much, the same thing happens here all the time whereby Christian families who may have a form of religion but no personal experiential knowledge when it comes to the true and living God, no true gospel knowledge, they have a form or a shell of religion. Uh, they, They may have a framework of religion and a little bit of morality, but their lives really are no different than the Canaanites. Now They even begin worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the culture. What are the gods of our culture today? Well, the god of success, the god of money, possessions, wealth, license. So so there's a challenge when it comes to leading our kids to faith, and that challenge is the external culture around us. Who's discipling your kids? Who's speaking into your children's life? Who's the one who's forming the ideals of your children about what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false? the Canaanites, or you as a believing mom and dad who's speaking from personal experience, experiential knowledge of the true and living God. Now that's not the only thing. Your children also face the challenge of their own internal condition. (laughs) So the challenge is when it comes to leading your kids to Christ, you've got the external culture around you, but what about their own internal condition? Your children come into this world with a sinful nature that they inherited from Daddy Adam, same way that you did. They don't come into this world basically good, they come into this world depraved. You ever heard of the property laws of the toddler? I came across this, I thought this was so good because it illustrates the way toddlers think, okay? Law number one, if I like it, it's mine. Law number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Law number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way whatsoever. Six, if I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. Seven, if it looks like mine, it's mine. Eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. Ten, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) Now that's funny, but man, that illustrates to a T the sin nature that we come into this world with. Nobody ever had to teach me how to be selfish and self-centered. Nobody ever had to teach you. Let me tell you, we don't become sinners at some point. We are born sinners, but the older we get, the more we perfect our sin. Just like you, your children are sinners who desperately need the saving grace of God. They come into this world with a sin nature that they inherited from Adam, and that's why so much parenting advice today, while it's helpful, so much deals with the symptoms and the behavioral issues in a child's life, when the gospel deals with something that goes much deeper, and it's the issue of the heart. Nothing externally can ever change your children internally, only the grace of God, only the gospel of Jesus Christ, only the Spirit of God, and the converting power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the question. Have you had a personal experience like that as mom or dad, whereby you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the God of heaven stepped out of heaven and into your life? Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord. So if I'm going to impact the next generation, it's got to come from personal experience. There has to be a personal experience with the grace of God in my own life. But then I want you to notice next there has to be an explanation of the gospel of God. To truly impact the next generation, there's gotta be an experience with the grace of God, but that experience has to give way to a verbal explanation of the gospel of God. Because again, notice what, what Moses is saying here in this text, when your son asks you in time to come, when the question is raised about your faith then you shall say to your son. In other words, you'll, you need to use your words to be intentional, to instruct, to explain the truth to your children. You know, Peter says we should always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within us. That applies in all situations, especially the, the context of the home. Always be prepared to give a defense of the faith, an explanation of the gospel to your children. So this explanation had to do with their former bondage and redemption from Egypt. It's something that Moses doesn't want this generation to neglect. Tell the next generation about how God saved you from your slavery. Tell the next generation how God redeemed you by his power with an outstretched mighty arm. Whenever you gather around the Passover supper, Use Passover as an opportunity to instruct your children uh, in in the ways of God and how when the Passover lambs, can you imagine, just use your imagination for a second, could you imagine how Passover would provide parents an opportunity to explain the truth of redemption to their kids? Could you imagine the, the questions that were perhaps raised in those Israelite homes when the Passover lambs were killed every year? After a family had watched that little lamb for some time and maybe the children of that home had been playing around with that little lamb for some time, then daddy has to take a knife and he has to cut that little lamb's throat and the blood from that lamb had to be drained into a basin and the blood from that lamb had to be splattered onto their doorposts. That lamb had to be roasted whole and had to be eaten by the family with bitter herbs and with unleavened, tasteless bread. I could just hear the little kids in the Israelite homes ask the question, why, Daddy? Why did we have to kill that little lamb? Why did that lamb have to die? Why did we have to eat that lamb? And that then gave Israelite parents an opportunity to explain the truth of redemption to their children. It gave an Israelite man this opportunity to say, let me tell you, we were slaves in Egypt. We were in bondage to the Egyptians. We could not save ourselves, but God showed himself strong on our behalf. And the firstborn of Israel got to go free because the Passover lamb died as our substitute. And God brought us out. And without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. It's the same type of questions that should be provoked and asked by our kids whenever we gather around the Lord's Supper table. Folks, with all of my heart, I miss the regular rhythms of worshiping with my church family, observing the Lord's Supper. You can't do that online. (laughs) Baptism. Looking at baptism and the picture of that is of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the questions that baptism and the Lord's Supper and worship and being together with an open Bible and, and, and gathered together as the family of God, the, the questions that this brings about in the minds of our children, it gives us as parents an opportunity to provide gospel explanations. And we trust that the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word that we sow into the hearts and lives of our kids. And as we're faithful and diligent to pray for their salvation and to pray for their discipleship and to pray for their future spouses, to pray for their lives, we trust that God's going to bring them up in that faith and that there'll be a true investment. We'll be able to make a true impact as we pass along our faith to our kids. The point is that God gave his people some markers that would testify of his power and his grace and their children would listen to their stories. Do your children know your salvation testimony? Do your children know how you personally came to faith in Jesus? Do they know your story? Do they know why the faith is important to you and to your family? Because listen, without this, without a testimony, you have absolutely nothing to say. Without this, you have nothing to pass along to your children. You can introduce them to religion as a system, but without a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, you can't introduce them to Jesus as a friend and savior to sinners. You can't point them to a well that never runs dry if you yourself haven't been to that well personally. So you gotta ask yourself this question, do I have in my own life as a mom or a dad an experience with God that's grounded in the truth of his gospel whereby there is a second volume to my life? Volume one of my life, BC, before Christ. Before I got saved, let me tell you, I was, I was, I was a sinner, I was lost, I was undone, I was on my way to hell, but God, who is rich in mercy, rescued me from my slavery to sin. Jesus Christ saved me. Someone shared with me the truth that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that Jesus rose again from the dead, and that Jesus would save me and forgive me and come into my heart and life if I call out to him in faith and repentance. And now there's a volume two to my life. Now, listen, old things have passed away and all things have become new. (laughs) And folks, that's gospel hope. That's the kind of hope that we need to pass along to our children. God's not in the business of sprucing up our old lives. You know, He doesn't want to put one of those pine tree air fresheners on your life that you see hanging from the rearview mirror in cars. (laughs) He wants to give you a brand new life altogether. Not just sprucing up your life. He wants to make you new. The Bible says that we can create this hunger and thirst for for our children. You know, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's a general principle. Basically, it simply means that godly parents, for the most part, rear godly children. Parents who instruct their children in a godly way usually rear up children who grow up into responsible adults. Now, many of you uh, have this testimony. Maybe your kids are grown. Maybe there was a season of straying. You did everything that you could as a parent, but for whatever reason, your child determined to go a different way in life. It doesn't mean that you're a failure as a parent. It doesn't mean that you dropped the ball as a parent. It doesn't mean that you need to live your life with guilt. But if those seeds of the truth were sown into your child's heart, even when they were young, listen, think about it. You don't know what the rest of their life holds. You don't know what God's doing in their heart even now or what he's going to do down the road. Sometimes the seed of the gospel lies dormant in a heart even before it takes root and then begins to bear fruit in time. But train up a child in the way he should go. That word train up in Hebrew that's used in that verse, uh, it it conveys this idea of dedication. In fact, a Middle Eastern midwife would crush dates and place crushed dates on the palate of a baby's mouth to stimulate the instinctive action to suck so that that child could be nourished. That's where that word comes from. The idea is that this training up, over time, it came to mean creating a thirst or a hunger within a child for the things of God. What do you make your children thirsty for? What appetites do you cultivate in their hearts through the way that you live your life, through the example that you yourself set, through what you deem important as a mom or a dad? I pray that it's the gospel. I pray that it's the things of God. I pray that it's the truth of his word, and the truth that they're loved by God, but the truth that they are sinners in need of the saving grace of God, and that Jesus alone can save. Would you bow your heads with me, wherever you are? If you're watching online, those of you who were here. Folks, with all of my heart, I don't want to let the time pass me by and I fail to make a true spiritual impact in the lives of my kids. I want to to make the most of the time and the opportunity while I have it. You know, I read where Joe Gibbs, when he retired from coaching in the NFL, there was a reporter who asked him why he was calling it quits when he seemed to be on top of his game. And the way that Joe Gibbs responded was legendary. He said he went home one evening after one of his 12 or 14 hour days, was typical. But he decided to go kiss his kids goodnight and he went into their rooms only to discover that they had become men and he had missed it. <laughs> you still got small children in the home, don't let that opportunity pass you by to make an imp- a true impact in their lives for Christ's sake. Can you pass along something that you possess personally? Has there been a personal experience in your life with the grace of God? If not, then why not now, right there where you are, could you perhaps pray along these lines and say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and my need for you. I cannot save myself. I know that my sin deserves the wrath of God. I've broken your laws. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, in my place, as my substitute. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. Please forgive me. Please save me. I confess you as my Lord this day. And my friend, no person who has ever turned to Christ in faith has he ever turned away. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're a believer as a mom or dad. Are you providing explanations for your children from personal experience of the gospel? Are you reinforcing in their minds the truth that they've been made uniquely in the image of God, that sin is their greatest problem, but Christ is their one and only savior? Have you brought them to the point of decision? Have you brought them to the point of whereby they themselves personally respond to the invitation, come to the well of living water that never runs dry. Drink and be satisfied. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the home. Thank you for moms and dads. Thank you for our children. Lord, they're gifts that have been given to us. Lord, may we not let let the days and moments pass us by where we have an opportunity to sow into their lives. The world around us, their peers, the external culture, their internal sinful condition are challenges. But with God, all things are possible. Lord, for moms and dads today who perhaps have grown sons and daughters that may not be walking in the faith, Lord, I pray that those moms and dads, I know they have burdens for their children. But Lord, may they just simply place all of their trust and all of their confidence in in God and the seed of the truth that's been sown. You are sovereign over the lives and over the hearts of our kids. As a church, may we do all that we can, Lord, to impact the next generation for Christ's sake. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.